Science is the best tool ever devised for understanding how the world works. Science is a very human form of knowledge. We are always at the brink of the known. Science is a collaborative enterprise spinning the generations. We remember those who prepared the way, seeing through them also. Hi, everybody, and welcome to November's installment of Beer with BMSIS. I'm Jacob Hukmisra, and thanks so much for joining us. Uh, this is the podcast that features the research, philosophy, and ideas of the members and friends of the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. If you'd like to learn more about our institute, you can check us out on the web at www.bmsis.org, and you can listen to previous editions of our podcast on iTunes or on bmsis.org slash podcast. So we have an excellent show for you uh, today. This is the last show of the year, and we're now taking a break for the winter holidays until February. And uh, perhaps fitting leading up to Thanksgiving, today's uh, topic is titled Feeding Everyone No Matter What by Dr. Dave Denkenbecker, Denkenbecker excuse me, from the Global Catastrophic Risk Institute. But first, to kick things off, we have Mr. Seth Baum to tell us about one of his favorite non-alcoholic beverages, which means that our usual disclaimer is not in effect. So please feel free to enjoy this beverage as you wish, whatever age you are. Thanks, Jacob. So the uh, beverage I'm drinking here, I'll hold, I'll hold it up in the, the mug I'm drinking it out of, and I guess I can hold the tea bag that it came from. Uh, the mug has the, the beautiful Pittsburgh skyline on it, and this is a mug full of uh, rooibos tea. Uh, rooibos is, is tasty and is uh, also an interesting one from the Finbos region of South Africa, which is part of the Cape Floral Kingdom, which is the uh, by far the smallest floral kingdom, at least at least on Earth. So that's your little fun fact about rooibos tea. I'm uh, happy to introduce Dave Denkenberger as our speaker for today. Dave is a colleague of mine with the Global Catastrophic Risk Institute, and so we work on understanding and trying to help avoid or, or, or survive the, the worst major global catastrophes that could hit this planet, uh, the things that could really knock out all of human civilization. And Dave's an engineer by training, and so he focuses on developing especially technological solutions to the different catastrophes. And that's what he's going to be presenting about today, which is uh, some ideas he has about how to keep people alive following uh, global catastrophes that uh, put a large dent or even eliminate the traditional uh, global agriculture systems. And so that's what uh, Dave's going to be talking about today. Well, thank you for the introduction, Seth. I guess I'll dive in. The title, Feeding Everyone No Matter What, Solving the food crisis and event of global catastrophes that kill crops or obscure the sun. This uh, work has resulted in a book that's actually coming out today with a similar title, Feeding Everyone No Matter What, but Managing Food Security After Global Catastrophe. So I'll start out with some background, uh, then go over individual solutions of feeding people, even if the sun is blocked. Then talk about moral hazard, which refers to if we have these backup plans, then we might not work as hard to prevent the catastrophes in the first place. Then I'll conclude 
So then I thought I'd say a little bit more about the Global Catastrophic Risk Institute. In addition to the risks that I'll talk about that could affect food, some of the other things we study are pandemics, global totalitarianism, artificial life, artificial intelligence, and physics disasters. And one of the big goals of GCRI is to look across all these risks and find interventions and prioritize the interventions to reduce risk most effectively. And it's one of the few organizations that, that has that goal. So then some disclaimers. I'll be talking about many different fields in this uh, presentation, and I'm, not an ex I'm really only an expert in energy, but I have gotten subject matter experts to uh, review each section. And the other disclaimer is that this is initial uh, work, and uh, so the accuracy of the calculations I only claim to be accurate within an order of magnitude. Now, when I talk about these disasters, many people will ask me about cannibalism because it is true that if we, if we only have about a year's worth of stored food, and if we spread that food to everyone and the sun were blocked for five years, then people would eat for one year and then everyone would die and we might have to resort to cannibalism. But it turns out that cannibalism doesn't really solve the problem. I can get into calculations if people are interested. And really the goal here is to feed everyone so that we won't have to resort to such extreme measures. So now I'll go over the, the different crises that can affect the food supply. One is abrupt climate change. And uh, at least so far, th this is climate change that happens over about a decade timescale. And this has happened naturally. But something that's a big change in only a decade has only been regional uh, so far. Then there's the superweed, which does not refer to the savior of medicinal marijuana users, but instead a, a weed that outcompetes crops. Then there's a super crop pathogen, which would cause disease in crops, super bacterium that might disrupt beneficial bacteria. A super crop pest refers to an insect or a mammal that destroys crops. And then possibly regional nuclear war, um, such as with a few dozen nuclear warheads, say between India and Pakistan, that's not enough to block the sun but it is enough to disrupt the ozone layer. And so that increased uh, ultraviolet radiation could disrupt crops significantly, uh, but that needs more research. But then moving on to the crises that actually can block the sun, uh, one would be the full-scale nuclear war and, and burning of cities, uh, putting smoke into the stratosphere, and that's called nuclear winter. Then there's a super volcanic eruption, much larger than the ones that have occurred in the last few centuries. And finally, an asteroid or comet impact, roughly larger than about one kilometer diameter. Now, there are many other problems that affect agriculture, but generally they're, they're either a smaller or slower impact on uh, global food production. So those include slow climate change, loss of fisheries, species extinction, loss of unsustainable irrigation, loss of artificial pesticides and fertilizers, loss of topsoil, salinization of soil, desertification, water pollution, other resource exhaustion, and then also the loss of bees. People might have heard of a quote that's been misattributed to Einstein that uh, if we lost all the bees, then man would only have four years to live. Um, it's actually not true. The impact on our food supply of animal pollination is three to eight percent of our calories and not all animal pollination is bees. So it's a, it certainly would be a problem, but it's not a problem of the magnitude that, that uh, I would be address, addressing with these alternate food supplies. 
So there, there are lots of risks here, uh, but there's not a lot of data on a lot of them, like the, the ones that kill crops directly. Um, but I've been able to, uh, and I say I, I, I have a co-author, uh, Joshua Pierce at Michigan Tech, who's helped uh, on this project. So we've been able to analyze the, uh, the probabilities of what we think are the four m most serious disasters, that is uh, abrupt climate change, asteroid or comet, supervolcano, and nuclear winter. And I won't go through, uh, through them all, but the, the most likely we think are the abrupt climate change and the nuclear winter. But as I said, the abrupt climate change uh, is generally at the regional level. Um, so it would certainly be bad if we lost agriculture over Europe, but it's not quite as bad as the nuclear winter case where we could lose agriculture globally. And then how long it might take for these disasters to recover depends on the type of particles that are put into the stratosphere. Uh, for the supervolcano, it's, it's a few years, sulfate particles, whereas with a nuclear winter, it's smoke, it's uh, black carbon. And so those particles are actually lofted further into the stratosphere, higher up by the sun. And there, the, the time constant is more like 10 years. So looking across these disasters, the, the nuclear winter is the highest probability and also a very high impact. So that's the one uh, we most have to worry about. And I should say uh, that why do we think the probability of nuclear winter is so high, giving it around a 1 in 10 chance this century? Even if we did not have bad tensions between the U.S. and Russia, it's possible that a natural event or a terrorist could trigger a false alarm, which could trigger full-scale nuclear war. So um, these probabilities are not negligible, and actually Seth Baum has uh, co-authored a paper on, on trying to quantify these probabilities. So the crises that only reduce agriculture by less than 70%, there is a conventional technical solution. And that is reducing the amount of pre-harvest losses. So like using better crop varieties, better irrigation, then controlling weeds and pests better, uh, reducing the amount of wasted food, both in distribution and at people's tables. Um, and then also reducing the edible food fed to livestock and pets and the edible food that goes to biofuel production. So if we did all those things, um, not perfectly, but realistically, we could, we could handle a 70% reduction in agriculture. And what we'd need to produce is about 1.5 billion tons per year of food to feed all 7 billion people. But if we have a disaster that reduces the agricultural supply by more than that, then we need alternate food supplies, which is what I'll be focusing on. Then generally, there, there is some food storage, and before the disaster fully took hold, we might be able to produce a little more uh, conventional agriculture food. But generally, we'd have to ramp up these other solutions in about a year. And we focus on feeding everyone for five years, even though the disaster could last longer than that, because we might be able to use one solution for five years and another solution for the next five years, and some disasters last less than five years. Other than working with conventional agriculture, the only uh, solution we've seen in the literature is increasing food storage. And there's several problems with that. One, if the disaster struck next year, then we wouldn't have very much food storage, so it's not going to help. But even if we decided to store up years' worth of food, this would inflate the price of food and exacerbate the current 
malnutrition problem. Malnutrition actually contributes to millions of deaths per year. But then recognizing the fact that we don't feed everyone adequately now, it sounds absurd that I'm claiming we could feed everyone even if the sun were blocked. And that's because what I'll be focusing on here is what we could physically do, the technical solution. And I recognize that the economic and and political realities uh, could paint quite a different picture, and that's important future work. A lot of these solutions uh, convert dead biomass into food or fossil fuels into food. So assumed that we, we have current amount of biomass and current population, some disasters would kill people, burn or radioactively contaminate regional biomass and destroy infrastructure, but the severity of the problem would be similar. Okay, so on to solutions. Now there's one solution that could work if we still had some sunlight. So in the case of uh, a recent nuclear winter simulation, about half the sun was blocked. And so I think it would be possible to get some food from fishing. And currently, uh, 0.1% of the ocean undergoes coastal upwelling, uh, bringing nutrients to the surface, but it produces 50% of the global fish catch. What might happen if a disaster cools the earth? Well, the oceans would overturn, bringing nutrients to the surface. That would be short-lived, but then we could could fertilize the ocean with macronutrients like uh, nitrogen and phosphorus. You can't see it, but I have a a number of graphs that uh, look at how fast we could ramp up the the food solution from when we first hear about the crisis. And I've estimated with fishing, we could ramp up to full human food in about a year and a half. So now on to solutions that require dead biomass. So I've done calculations on on how much biomass we have. We actually have a lot. Uh, We would have sufficient chainsaws to cut it down. We might also be able to chip the wood for for certain solutions. Even though we don't have that many wood chippers, I use an analogy from World War II where we retrofitted automobile manufacturing to airplane. But if we needed wood chippers, we could retrofit those same factories for producing wood chippers. When I do these calculations, there's an ideal growth rate, like how fast fish could could multiply. But generally, I take the square root of that ideal, um, recognizing that we're not going to be able to save all the offspring. And then there's an ideal efficiency of converting biomass into food, but I cut that in half to be conservative. So there are a number of solutions that could rely on fossil fuels. We could directly synthetically produce food like sugar from fossil fuels. We could also provide chemicals to chemosynthesizing bacteria, and we can grow food with artificial light. But all of these scenarios have difficulty ramping up industrial capacity. The only exception is bacteria oxidizing methane, so bacteria actually using natural gas as a food source. And I think this, uh, this would be feasible. Then another technique uh, takes a cue from biofuels. So you may be familiar with second generation or cellulosic biofuels uh, that convert not the corn to, to fuel, but the corn stock. What, what we do now is we take enzymes or acid to break the, this fiber into sugar, and then we take, feed the sugar to fungi to produce ethanol. But if what we needed was food, we could just stop this process at the sugar and eat the sugar. So I've estimated that methane digesting bacteria could be ramped up in about six months and enzyme produced food in about a year.
Now, there are many animals that can digest cellulose. Ruminants, such as cattle, sheep, and goats, can do this. There are also other grazers, like horses and deer. Rabbits can digest cellulose. And right now, especially from cattle, they make up quite a few of our calories. But the problem is they don't have many offspring per year. So it's difficult to ramp up. So I've estimated 5% of our food requirements could be, you know, would be gotten from them right away. But after five years, they're still only at about 20% of our, our food supply. So not a full solution. For mushrooms, uh, mushrooms grow on logs. You can do this outdoors if it's not freezing, but they're not very efficient. So in the long run, we could probably only get about a quarter of our food from that. There are cellulose digesting beetles some that can eat wood directly. And I've estimated that could ramp up to full food in about four years. Rats can digest some cellulose. They're not as good as some of these other animals. But in nature, there's a way of pre-treating uh, cellulose so that a non-cellulose digester can eat it. And an example of this is fish will eat rotten leaves. Fish can't digest the cellulose, but they're eating the bacteria. And so we could do the same thing with our biomass. We could have bacteria or, or fungi grow on it and then feed it to the rats. And there are more rats than people on Earth, so that can be ramped up in about two years. And then a similar situation is for chickens, but they really have no ability to digest cellulose. So we have to make sure it was uh, low fiber what we're feeding them. There are a lot of chickens and they, they lay a lot of eggs, so that could actually be full food in about a year. Now, some of these take about a year to ramp up, but in a worst case scenario, like a disaster striking right before the, the Northern Hemisphere harvest, we have only a few months of, of food storage. And so then we would want a solution that we can ramp up very quickly, and I call this fast food. And this is dependent on the biomass sources that are thin, like leaves or, or maybe less than one centimeter diameter branches. And there are three techniques, uh, extracting edible calories, mushrooms, and bacteria. So what does extracting edible calories mean? Well, even though we can't eat most leaves, there are human digestible calories in leaves, but there's so much fiber that we wouldn't get any net calories. So it's like, uh, it'd be like eating 100% celery. You'd probably lose weight than, rather than maintain your weight. So there, but there are three ways around this problem. One is making tea. We can actually make pine needle tea, and uh, you're just drinking the, the soluble stuff and you're throwing away the needles. You could also chew on a leaf and get some liquids and then spit out the solids. Or there's also an industrial technique where they grind the leaves up and press them and uh, coagulate the, the liquid. So you take the solids out and eat that. And this, this could potentially be a, a full food solution if we say, well, we extract some calories from the leaves for humans directly and then feed the rest to mushrooms and then feed the waste from that to cows, for instance. Even though there aren't many, nearly as many leaves to start with, you might be able to feed everyone for five years. The mushroom fast food would actually be indoors, so it would be like using people's basements, uh, which would be feasible. And then the bacteria fast food is the least palatable. Here we're talking about humans eating the rotten leaves. But there might be a way of the bacteria breaking down the leaves into sugar outside their bodies, and then they would normally absorb them in, absorb the sugar into their bodies. Well, we might be able to leach that sugar out and just make soda out of it, sugar water with carbon dioxide. So that would, that would be a little tastier than eating rotten leaves. 
And then as you, as you saw in the, the one-page uh, PDF, I believe, there is a food web. So you can look at the, the different food solutions that I've talked about and say, well, I've just talked about them individually, but in reality, they can interact with each other. Waste product from one could go as, as feed to another, and this would increase the, the overall feasibility. There are a number of organisms that I do not think are promising. I can get into that if people have questions. I have focused on the nutrition side just from the macronutrients, so protein, carbohydrates, and lipids. In that case, we'd likely have to combine some of the food sources to do it. But what I haven't done is the, uh, the micronutrients. Now, minerals would actually be easy to provide because we can still mine them, but it's the vitamins that are more difficult. So future work is to see if bacteria could produce the vitamins we need. In terms of biodiversity, if you take the example of 5,000 mammal species, if we only have to keep 100 individuals alive per species, it would actually require one thousandth as much food to feed all those animal species as it would to feed seven billion people. If we can feed everyone and there's not mass starvation, we can actually think about preserving the species. And I think that would, that would be feasible for many species. Uh, I've looked at transportation, energy, forest products, I, I think they would, and, and water, I think they'd all be feasible. And generally, these other problems like toxic gases and high temperature and fires and ionizing radiation would generally be localized because these things tend to get rained out of the atmosphere. So they wouldn't go much beyond a, a continent. Those directly are not a, a global food supply problem. And there are other solutions that require preparation, but I'm just focusing on the ones that we could ramp up without much preparation. So I already mentioned about moral hazard. It's true that Mikhail Gorbachev actually stated that motivating factor for reducing the nuclear arsenal of USSR was studies predicting nuclear winter because the destruction would be outside of the target countries. But even though we have knowledge of nuclear winter, we still have enough nuclear weapons to potentially cause nuclear winter. Similarly with climate change, even though we're aware of the threat, we haven't done that much about it. And these solutions could, could help out catastrophes uh, over which we have very little control. Take the example of supervolcanoes. So I'd say overall, the, the moral hazard problem of not caring as much about preventing the disasters is pretty small. And so we're, we're overall much better off having this backup plan. I mentioned some, some future work. There are also experiments. Uh, we've relied on what experiments have already been done, but if we could do experiments with this with this project in mind, that would provide additional good data. And I think there is uh, urgency to perform follow-up research because if the research just increased the probability, given a disaster, that most people would survive versus most people dying, increase that probability only by one-tenth of one percent, every day delay of completion of that project would cost an order of magnitude of 10 lives. So this is expected value framework where you're multiplying the consequence and the probability. So it's, a, it's high priority to do follow-up research. One of the conclusions is that some of these solutions could be relevant uh, even in times without a crisis. I won't go back through all the different solutions. Even in the most extreme disasters, such as a very large asteroid or comet that could result in burning of nearly a, all of above-ground vegetation, there may still be some routes to feed everyone, um, relying on peat or, or fossil fuels. What, what can we do 
about this, you know, individually, as we were talking about at the beginning, uh, we can prepare individually as the preppers do. We can learn more and raise awareness about these solutions. Because I, I do think overall, we have a much better chance of saving civilization given one of these disasters if world leaders knew it, it actually was possible to feed everyone, that if we did cooperate, we could feed everyone. This has important ramifications for, for civilization surviving. So other things we could do, uh, as I mentioned, you know, lead political activism. We could try cooking with alternate foods. We could even try a diet of alternate foods. But of course, you want to take a multivitamin and uh, get doctor's permission. And then I have many acknowledgments that I won't go through, but I think I should open up for questions. Well, thanks so much, Dave. It's a very fascinating talk. And in terms of recipes, I can think that there might be a little bit of a demand for a um, beetle cookbook, perhaps. I can't really think of too many ways to make those uh, too appetizing. Also made me think that maybe our beverage of choice should have been um, bacteria soda. <laughs> Bacterial or, or flood pine, soda. Yeah, pine needle tea. I mean, that actually is semi-conventional. A lot of people do. That actually it. doesn't sound too bad. Yeah. Um, so my question is actually kind of along those lines, and then we'll open it up to, to the, anyone else. But it, it made me think when you're discussing the options of like, what can humans ultimately eat? Like you discuss the food web nicely because you have to produce everything. But, you know, there's some things like fish, which are very nice and chickens. And compared to eating a rat or eating a beetle, I think there's going to be a high preference for certain foods versus others where now in, in, a, in the wake of a catastrophe when resources are limited, it seems to me like you might get even a more pronounced economic disparity between the types of foods people are eating, which I don't know if that would impact survivability or not, but certainly there's going to be rich person foods and poor person foods depending on what, what people like. And, and I would think costs might reflect that based on, on, on tastes. I don't know if there's much you can do about that, but it's just sort of an interesting conundrum to be put in where there's some food you like and some that you really probably don't want to eat. Yeah, I, I think that would be really an interesting to investigate, but, um, but probably difficult. For the near-term follow-up work, what we've been thinking is this concept of global cooperation given a catastrophe is probably not the most likely, uh, that international cooperation could break down. So you could think of the countries as individual and see, well, how much biomass do they have? How much fossil fuels do they have? Could they feed their people? And then we could even do it on the county level, uh, like in the U.S., if cooperation broke down within the U.S. So that's kind of the way we've been thinking for, for follow-up work. But yeah, I mean, the, those would probably still be technical, like can you produce enough food to feed everyone, rather than answering the question of, you know, what food would different people eat? Hi, uh, it's Seth. I, I have a, a question. I'm already familiar with some of this work, but something that I, I keep thinking about is to really make these solutions work in the event of a catastrophe. So, so you do some, some analysis of like ramping up times so that we would, would, uh, you know, start developing these technologies and, you know, scaling them up. Uh, following the catastrophe, but but I'm I'm interested to hear more about what should be done ahead of time prior to the catastrophe to to put the the pieces in place so that things could be scaled up. And okay, sure, there's there's like research to be done on refining the techniques, but 
Is it a matter of like distributing certain certain resources, certain you know, uh, bacteria or, or whatever it is to different communities around the world such that if there is a you know, nuclear war eruption or whatever it is, then they'll have what they need to be able to do this? Or is this really something that people can kind of come up with based on kind of uh, ordinary resources that some random community in, in Australia or India or, or here or wherever would would be likely to have? Well, I think in the scenario of global cooperation, it's not as important to distribute the resources for food production to the countries or communities ahead of time. But if we don't have international cooperation, then yeah, that could be important preparation to do. But I think at, at this point, it's the highest priority, I would say, is just to get awareness out, because I do think that these, you know, even if a few of these solutions don't work out as planned, since there are about 10 of them, I do think we would be able to ramp it up, assuming we cooperated. And just the awareness of that would hopefully mean that we wouldn't, we wouldn't go nuts, and that we would continue to uh, co- cooperate. Beyond that, then, you know, individual countries could have plans on how they would handle it. And that that could mean acquiring resources or doing pilot experiments, etc. If I understand you correctly, it sounds like the uh, need to distribute resources ahead of time to different communities around the world is uh, not as big of a thing if if the world's still cooperating to uh, after the catastrophe to get things where they need to be. But if they're not, then there probably is some work to do before the catastrophe to, to get things in place. That's right. So Dave, I have a quick question for you. You talked a little bit about the issues with fish as a, as a biomass resource in a, a partial nuclear winter, if I got that correct. So there were two elements to that. There was the shading issue, and then there's also the nutrient upwelling issue. And you talked a little bit about how nutrient upwelling could continue to fuel uh, biomass production in the ocean. Um, in that event, I wasn't clear on how that would continue with the shading. So could you um, expand on that a little bit? The blocking of the sun, say in nuclear winter, can last five or 10 years, whereas the overturning of the ocean would be a transient thing. It might just overturn for one year as the ocean equilibrated to, to a new temperature. And so in order to maintain fish production after that first year, then we need to do something else. And that's why I was proposing uh, macronutrient fertilization. So you may have heard of uh, iron fertilization proposed for the ocean. Uh, Iron is a a micronutrient. You don't need very much of it. And you can put it in the ocean where iron is deficient. The problem is that then that biomass grows and consumes the macronutrients, nitrogen, phosphorus, and then down current uh, where there might have been enough iron and the biomass would have grown. Well, now it can't because you've you've consumed the macronutrients. So what I'm talking about is actual macronutrient fertilization of the ocean. So for instance, if we are, if we're not using our nitrogen and phosphorus fertilizer to produce plants on the land because they're not growing anymore, we could dump that fertilizer into the ocean. And then even though there's lower light, we're talking about half the light, there still would be photosynthesis. Now, another problem is uh, the, the ultraviolet problem that I alluded to, that if the ozone layer is destroyed, then there's going to be more ultraviolet. But it turns out that ocean water absorbs ultraviolet more strongly than visible. So the, the algae wouldn't be growing right on the surface if ultraviolet were high, but it could be a little below the surface and be protected from the ultraviolet. 
Does that answer your question? Um, a little bit, yeah. I mean, I guess I'm not totally clear on why the nutrients would need to be artificially stimulated past that first year. The light limitation thing was the was the bit that I was missing earlier. So now I see that there's half light, which is certainly plenty to to keep primary production high. You know, as long as primary production is high, there's no reason to think that the nutrients will go somewhere from that remineralization of that biomass. I think the issue is that when you get that initial pulse of nutrients, there would be two sinks for those nutrients. One would be the the fish we remove, which potentially we could put our waste back in the ocean. That could that could help. But then there's also the the fish poop that could sink down below the the zone where you get light, the photic zone. Sure, um, but the uh, the amount of nutrients that's bound up in fish biomass is is very small relative to the total nutrient pool. Well, certainly in the case of open ocean, um, where you have upwelling and have high nutrient levels, mm-hmm. you can go uh, just two trophic levels. You can have fish that eat algae directly, and and then the 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 fraction in fish can be greater. But but it may turn out that that pulling that fish out and then the the fish poop falling is not really that much of a problem. It wouldn't require that much more fertilizer. So I think you're arguing that it's maybe even more feasible than I think. Yeah, I think that as long as you've got half light, you'll keep you'll keep primer production, you'll keep biomass out there. Dave, thanks again for joining us. This has been a fantastic discussion. Definitely uh, food for thought, pun intended, I suppose. But definitely an uh, interesting. Um, take on global catastrophes. I know that when I first started talking to Seth about global catastrophic risk, just the concept of that, uh, this wasn't really one of the, the first things that came to mind. But as you talk about it, obviously, that's extremely important. If some catastrophe does happen, there's going to be an immediate need to produce food for the masses. So best of luck with your book. I hope it does really well. And uh, you know, thanks again for being our guest. Listeners, thanks for tuning in. You can uh, check us out online again at bmsis.org slash podcast. And we will see you again in 2015 next February. Thank you. Science replaces private prejudice with publicly verifiable evidence. There's real poetry in the real world. Science is the poetry of reality. We can do science. And with it, we can improve our lives.